0: This morning our scripture reading is taken from 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. And our sermon passage is the first half of 1 Samuel, chapter 30. 1 Samuel 30, verses 1 to 15. So again, our scripture reading, 2 Timothy 2, 1 to 13. And our sermon passage, 1 Samuel 30. Verses 1 to 15. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. This is the Lord speaking to you. This is the primary, the foremost means of grace that the Lord has given to His people by which we may be strengthened. So please give your full attention to God's Word as it is now read. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we, also, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now turning, if you will, to 1 Samuel, chapter 30, verses 1 to 15. Now when David and his men came up to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They'd overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out, and the six hundred men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and four hundred men. Two hundred stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, And they gave him bread, and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant of an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the, of the Cherithites, and against that which belongs to Judah, and against the Negev of Caleb. And we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to his band? And he, said to, and he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to his band. Thus ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, again, we're grateful for what you have given to us, this precious word that you have bestowed upon us, that you have preserved for us, that you have caused to be passed down, handed down from generation to generation. We're thankful that we have a right, a perfect record of all that you did to save us, all that you desired for us to know, it is here. And we are thankful. but we pray that you would teach us now from your word as it is preached. Please, O Lord, bless us, both the one who preaches, the ones who hear. Give us wisdom. Lord, we pray that we would glorify you. That we would glorify you as the word is preached, that we would glorify you as a result of the preached word. So please, O Lord, we pray, call us to our duty. And give us all that we need to carry it out. And let us do so, we pray, gratefully. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you remember from last week's passage that it showed us how God can use undesirable circumstances, like utter rejection, the kind that uh, that David uh, experienced, to bring about deliverance for his people. David, who had found himself in a serious dilemma when Achish told him that David and his men would join the Philistines in battle against Israel, was delivered when the other Philistine leaders rejected David from fighting with them. And in some ways, this prefigured Christ's rejection and our deliverance as a result. He, of course, not only was rejected by his fellow Jews, but by his father, all so that those who belonged to him would be delivered from sin and death into his kingdom. As we mentioned last week, there are a number of commentators who argue that David's flight into Philistia in chapter 27 was sinful. They take issue with what he did. They believe that that was sinful. They say that he wasn't trusting the Lord, but instead that he took matters into his own hands. And I've argued here my belief, and again, I don't hold to it super tightly, but I... But I, but I do hold to it that David was forced to flee from Israel because of Saul and his insatiable desire to kill David, and that in and of itself was not sinful. There's nothing wrong in stepping away from a madman bent on your destruction, especially since David was convinced, he was utterly convinced that he could not, that he would not lay a hand against the Lord's anointed. And as we'll see this morning, how you understand today's passage depends at least somewhat on how you interpret David's flight to Philistia. If you think that it was sinful for him to do so, then you may conclude that the Amalekites taking David's, uh, David's, David's and his men's wives and children was a consequence of his sin. You may see that as, as God's discipline of David. If you don't think David sinned in going to Philistia, then you will probably understand the events of today's passage as a consequence of living under the common curse, where terrible things happen to people, but not necessarily as the result of some specific sin or other. But however you interpret it, and again, I don't think that one interpretation is necessarily better than the other, however you interpret it, you still see that God provided the means for David to overcome his weakness In order to rescue the wives and the children of the Israelites. And so as we work our way through the sermon today, I would ask you to to think on this. God graciously has provided everything that we need in order to be strengthened in Him. God graciously has provided everything that we need in order to be strengthened in Him. The sermon has three parts. The first part, desperation and despair. The second part, divine direction. And the third, from dead to delivered. So again, the first part of the sermon, desperation and despair. The second, divine direction. And the third, from dead to delivered. So let's look at the first part of the sermon, desperation and despair. Now We're told right away in chapter 30. Even before David and his men realize what has happened, we are told, the narrator tells us in verse 1, that the Amalekites have made a raid on Ziklag, David's town, and they burned it to the ground. And they took everything, all the people who were living there, they took them away. We read that David and his men arrived there on the third day, which means that it took them two full days to travel the 50 miles down from Aphek to Ziklag, and then sometime on the third day, depending on how far they were able to make it on the first two They arrived home, and when they got there, all they saw were the smoking ashes of what had been their town. Now, think about this. I don't know if any of you are avid walkers. I know that I am not necessarily, but walking 50 miles down from, uh, in a little over two days, down from Aphek to Zeklag, it showed that these men were eager to get home to their families. David and his men might have wanted to take the opportunity afforded by Achish and the other Philistine commanders who were going off to war with Israel to go back to Judah at this point. Verse 3 says that when they came to Ziklag, they found it burned and their wives and children taken captive. And we know that their wives and children are still alive because verse 2 tells us that David and his men don't know this yet. They won't know until they inquire of the ephod, until they inquire of the Lord. They won't know for sure until they see them with their own eyes when they catch up with the Amalekites. And finding the city burned and their families gone, verse 4 says that David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Now, some of you perhaps have been in a similar situation, so filled with sorrow that you run out of the strength to weep anymore. You've wept and wept. You have no more tears to cry. Most of us who were old enough during the wars that followed 9-11, we can still vividly remember the newscasts with videos of service members members returning from Iraq or Afghanistan, how happy they were to be back home to see their family, the big crowds who would gather at the airports to welcome the troops home. Who can forget the times that a father, a husband who had been deployed overseas came back home and surprised their children at school? Reunions after deployments are wonderful, joyous times, at least they're supposed to be. I can remember coming home after my one-year assignment in Bahrain and how overjoyed I was to see my mom and dad, to see my brother and my sister and their families. But the Israelites' return to Ziklag was filled with sorrow and despair. It was nothing like the kind of return and reunion they were hoping for. They wept until they had no more strength. Now this was likely compounded by the fact that they were low on rations. They were weary from a 50-mile hike. Verse 5 specifically mentions David's two wives, Abigail and Ahinoam. It mentions that they too had been taken. David wasn't exempt from what had happened to the families of the rest of his men. But David, because of who he was, because he was their leader, because they were all there because of David, he came under even greater pressure. His men, his most trusted men, these 600 men who had left the lands of Judah to follow him wherever he went, they began to mutiny. They started talking, they started grumbling, they started complaining, they started conversing about stoning him because, as we read in verse 6, they were bitter in soul. They blamed David for all of this. He was the one, after all, who had led them from Judah to Philistia. Maybe, perhaps, they had left a skeleton crew behind at Ziklag. It wouldn't have been many of the 600 men. Perhaps men who, for whatever reason, one reason or another, were unfit. They weren't capable of going into battle against Israel. They stayed behind, perhaps, as a rear guard to guard the city. But it wasn't enough. And these men blamed David for that. Not that it was written because of this event, but Psalm 22, I think, written by David, gives words to the kind of distress that David was feeling. In Psalm 22, particularly verses 14 and 15, we read, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. David is low. And the men, like all of us when something bad happens, started looking for someone to blame. And David was the obvious and the easiest target. Now even reading the account thousands of years later, it's easy to begin to to think about what David must have done to deserve this kind of discipline. But you see, that that kind of thinking sounds a lot like karma. Karma which incidentally is not a Christian doctrine. We live under a common curse. Bad things happen to people that aren't the direct result or consequence of some particular specific sinful behavior. It happens all the time. Now we have to admit, God does discipline his children, but we need to be very careful about assuming that when someone else is going through a hardship, that it's the direct result of a sin that they have committed against the Lord. Be careful. That's our tendency. We want to to think that. And we read there at the end of verse 6, David who is in despair, David who is in distress, David who is sorrowful, David who is so weak because of the traveling, so weak because of finding that his family, his wives, and everyone else's families are gone We read in verse 6, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And that's exactly what David does in the second half of Psalm 22. He's distressed and despairing in Psalm 22, but he reminds himself of the Lord and his goodness to David. Now perhaps here, on this day in Ziklag, David reminds himself of the miraculous deliverance that he and his men had just enjoyed up at Aphek. He probably remembered the many times that God had rescued him from the hand of Saul. He would have been remiss if he forgot how God had given him victory over Goliath. And it was precisely David's habit of remembering how God had delivered him from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear that gave him the confidence to go against Goliath in the first place. David had, had habituated himself to reminding himself. He made it a regular habit to, to remind himself of what the Lord had done. And so we see that David used the means at his disposal to strengthen himself in the Lord. In this case, through the Word of God. And that takes us to the second point of the sermon: Divine Direction. Now we've seen this before. That in the Old Testament, this time period before the canon of Scripture was closed, special revelation from God came to His people not only through Scripture, but through prophets, through the oracular devices, the ephod as it's referred to here, and through dreams. In our day, God's special revelation is His Word, the Bible, the completed canon of Scripture. And God's word is one of the three ordinary means of grace that God has given to his church to build his church up, to grow his church, to strengthen his church. God's word in David's day was a means of grace as well. It just came to God's people in different forms in that time. And it's no coincidence that verse 6 ends by saying that David strengthened strengthened himself in the Lord his God and verse 7 says that he called for the ephah to be brought to him. As the primary means of grace, God's word contains not only his revealed will for his people, which essentially was what David would seek by using the ephod, but it also recounts God's mighty works of salvation. God's word is filled with the indicative, the statements of fact about what God has done to save his people, as well as the imperative, the commandments that he gives us, that we're to to obey out of gratitude for the salvation that he has wrought for us. The Bible is a record of what God has done to secure salvation for his elect people. And as we read of what God has done for us, as we come to know what he would, what he would have us do in grateful response, we make use of this primary means by which God gives grace to his people. And we are, as a consequence, Strengthened. This is how David strengthened himself in the Lord, and the same is true of us. Now Paul commands Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, 2 Timothy 2, 1, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Notice that that verb, be strengthened, is in the passive voice. He doesn't say strengthen yourself. He says be strengthened. But it's also an imperative. It's a command. It's a a passive imperative. How do you be strengthened? Paul is commanding Timothy to become spiritually strong, but it is to be done passively. He is to be continually dependent upon God, he is to be strengthened by means of the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So we need to understand this: our spiritual strengthening—it is a passive workout, which simply means that we are being worked on by Jesus Christ. We don't do the spiritual workout; Christ does the workout on us. But we need to be clear that growth in spiritual strength is anything but passive. Passively growing in spiritual strength does not mean that you sit around and do nothing. There's great spiritual activity in the spiritual growth of the Christian. But it is Christ who is active. It is Christ who activates us. Timothy is to be strengthened by means of the grace that is in Christ Jesus, but how does he receive that grace? Certainly it comes to him by the Holy Spirit, who, as chapter 1, verse 14 of 2 Timothy says, dwells within the hearts of believers. But we could also say that Timothy was to be strengthened by means of the grace in Christ Jesus through the means of grace. The word of God, the sacraments, and prayer. Each of these outward and ordinary means is a conveyance by which we receive the grace of Christ through faith in him. As you partake each week. By faith in the means of grace that are offered to you in this church, you will be spiritually strengthened by grace. And David here makes use of one of the means of grace at his disposal. In verse 7, we read, And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. Now there's no doubt that each of us at some point in our lives... Might wish to have an oracular device like an ephod so that we could ask the Lord a direct question about what we ought to do. How many times have you been facing a, a serious, a major choice in your life? Should I, should I take this job that's going to take me off to Schenectady, New York? Take me away from friends and family? What should I do? You're faced with a, a very difficult choice. And so we would love to have the Lord say to us directly, yes, go take the job in upstate New York. Do it. But, which would you rather have? Only part of a Bible and an ephod, like David had, or no ephod, but the complete scriptures, in which we learn not only about God's Old Testament people, but have God the Son, Jesus Christ, revealed to us in full. In a sense, David was... The best that the Old Testament had to offer as he prefigured, as he was a picture of the Christ who was to come. In a sense, David was a revelation of himself to Jesus Christ. And in a sense, the revelation of Christ in the Old Testament was sufficient for the time. But God wanted us to have a full canon, a full. Scripture, a full Bible. And so trust me, knowing the only name by which you may be saved is far better from knowing who you ought to marry, where you ought to go, what you ought to do. The Bible is sufficient for you. And it supplies to you the wisdom to make a choice without telling you the specifics of what you should do. But in David's time, the Bible wasn't fully sufficient in the way that it is for us. He had the first five books of the Bible. Maybe he had a couple of others, and that would have been about it. David, as it turns out, was an active human author of Scripture. But he needed, he still needed something in addition to Scripture, and God provided it to him through the means of this ephod. In that instance, what David needed to know was whether or not to pursue after the Amalekites and if he would prevail over them. And that is what David asked the Lord by the means of this oracular device. And through the ephod, God responded, saying in verse 8, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. And immediately, David and his 600 men set out in pursuit of the Amalekites to rescue, if possible, their wives and their children. And they reached the brook called Besor, about 10 miles south of Zeklag and verses 9 and 10 say that 200 men were too exhausted to go any further and so they stayed behind. They had logged by this time about 60 miles in three days and they had simply run out of gas. And so David and 400 of his men continued their pursuit after the Amalekites and that takes us to the third and the final point of the sermon from dead to delivered. Somewhere to the south of this brook called Besor, in the open country, as verse 11 puts it, David's men found an, Egypt, an Egyptian, and they brought him to David. This man is also exhausted. And from their meager rations, they give him bread and fig cake and two clusters of raisin, raisins and water to drink. This man had been left to die in the wilderness by his Amalekite master. He hadn't eaten bread or drunk water in three days and three nights since they had left Ziklag, and his master left him because he fell sick those three days prior. He gave him nothing to eat and drink so that he might possibly survive. We'll see next week how the the Amalekites were well-supplied. They had taken everything from the villages that they had raided. They could have left this poor man with something, perhaps. But he was a slave to this Amalekite master. And his master's behavior was consistent with how most slaves have been treated throughout history. Mere possessions to be discarded when no longer of any use. This was how David and his men could expect their wives and children to be treated. And so we we must not forget the horror that the wives, the children, were experiencing at the hands of the Amalekites. And so finding this Egyptian man gave them a renewed sense of urgency, but it also gave them hope. The Egyptian told them in verse 14 of how the Amalekites had been making raids against Judah and the Negev of Caleb, how they'd burned Ziklag with fire. This man probably knew that the man asking him the questions was David, of whom songs were sung, but he doesn't grovel or beg David for mercy. David asked him in verse 15, will you take me down to this band? And the Egyptian answered, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master and I will take you down to this band. He negotiates with David almost on equal terms. This man knew exactly where the Amalekites were going. He could take David straight to them by the quickest possible means. And so once again, God provided exactly what David and his men needed to keep going. And in the process, David and his men were able to save the life of someone who had been left for dead. Now, brothers and sisters, there are times in our lives, in our Christian pilgrimage, where we suffer immensely. There are times where we grow weary. There are times where we are ready to throw in the towel, to give up. There are times, like the 200 men who stayed back by the brook, who could not go any further. That's the way that we feel. But like David and like Timothy, we are to be strengthened in the Lord by the grace of Christ Jesus. Now, sometimes we forget this because of our materialistic way of thinking, but God has given us everything that we need for our spiritual strength in the ordinary means of grace, the word, the sacraments, prayer. We think, we think, brothers and sisters, and I'm as guilty as anyone else, that more books, more conferences, more retreats, more things that cost us money will give us what we need and God has given us everything that we need for free. God has given you everything that a growing soul needs right here in public worship. It's not to say that conferences, that books, that retreats are bad. But they are bad when they become a substitute for the church. They are bad When they take the place of God's local assembly, a particular church where you are known and where you know one another. And people make idols of those who speak at conferences and write books and lead retreats. You have got here the Word of God and prayer on a weekly basis. You have the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism, like their Old Testament counterparts, on a regular but occasional basis. You've got all that you need, not only to survive, but to thrive. And none of this is to say that Christians don't get worn down and exhausted. True Christians, true believers do. There are times when you need simply to rest, just like those men who stayed behind at the brook. And as we'll see next week, despite the efforts of some, they suffered no consequence for what they did. It wasn't wrong for those men. It wasn't sinful for those men to have become completely spent and not be able to go any further. Worshiping the Lord, singing praises to Him because of His wonderful works on our behalf, reminding ourselves of who He is and what He has done, it strengthens us in the Lord. And so that is what God has commanded you to do. Be strengthened. By the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. As always, God fulfills in us the commandments that he gives to us. He commands us to be strengthened. And he lays at your feet the grace that you need to be strengthened through Jesus Christ. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for all that you have bestowed, all that you have laid before us. We pray, Lord, that we we would indeed be strengthened. That we would be diligent in our use of the ordinary means of grace. That we would set our minds upon it, that we would not act like robots going through the motions, but that we would actively... Make use of these means of grace. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for how we can hold it in our hands, how we can read it to ourselves, how we can hear it read. We're thankful for the sacraments, dear Lord, these sensible signs and seals by which you strengthen us in your grace. We're thankful for prayer. How we can come before you, O Lord, unimpeded, through no earthly priest, but directly through God Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, to our Father. What a blessing to us these means are. Help us, dear Lord, not to take them for granted, and in so doing, become weakened. Help us, O Lord, to be diligent, to simply take up what you have laid at our feet. We are grateful to you, dear Lord. And we pray that you would indeed strengthen us in Christ Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.